Um, and you're always welcome to ask questions about it afterwards. We not only expect that, but we respect people and their questions they have, okay? So that's what we're doing. This morning, we, oh, thank you. Someone put this up here. Th- these are little, um, they're, they're called basically um, journal books of the Bible. This is the Gospel of Mark, the story of Mark. We're going through this. We're teaching through it. We're a little more than halfway through. If you'd like one of these, if you, I mean, the scripture's in the, the worship guide you have. But if you'd like one of these, feel free to raise your hand. Zach will get you one. All right, there you go. And you can put notes in it. You can take it home. It's yours to keep. And uh, it's a great little thing. It's great to have it on your nightstand uh, or wherever else you put things you read. I went to the eye doctor recently. I've had, some of you guys know the story. I've had diabetes since I was five. So, you know, 40 plus years of my life, 45 years. And one of the, the leading cause of blindness in America is diabetes. So I got that going for me, right? And it's always interesting to get, you know, they come back, you know, come back in after they do all the diagnostics and they're like, um, well, you need to go on to the retina specialist now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm always like, great. Uh, fortunately, I've gotten used to that, so I don't read much into it. But, you know, what's very interesting is that all these projections about sight, um, is that there's supposed to be as many as 13 million Americans in the next two decades that will have visual pa- impairments or even blindness. That's a lot. And the Bible actually talks a lot about blindness, which is, which is odd. The passage we read earlier, saying that when this one comes from God, he will restore the sight of the blind. And, but we also see that Jesus talks to people about blindness when they're not physically blind. And so I think what we'll see when we read this passage is important. It's insightful. Sorry. I, all, all the puns and allusions are just going to be there today. I can't help it, okay? Um, so read along if you'd like uh, with me. I'm actually going to read a couple verses that aren't included in your booklet. Um, so we're going to read, starting, um, I'm going to read two verses from earlier in chapter 10, and then I'll jump over to what's actually in the book that you have. And Jesus said to them, that is James and John, two of his followers, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And then we skip to the forward a few verses to verse 46. And it says that when Jesus and his followers in a very large crowd were leaving Jericho, blind, or Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said to him, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. 
And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Lord, would you instruct us and teach us in the way we should go from these words? Counsel us and watch over us for our good and for your glory, we ask in and through you, Christ. Amen. I'm reminded of a beautiful story that is uh, in Pakistan not too long ago. I was reading this account of a mom and her daughter. The daughter's blind. And every, every night, the mother used to say to the daughter, you're beautiful. Yeah, you're really beautiful. And the daughter would reach up and, and rub her mom's face and, and say, I can't see you, but you feel beautiful. And it just went on like that um, day in, day out. Week in, week out. Month in, month out. And, and that begins to get a little bit and a small piece of what's going on here. Is we don't see God. But we also do see Jesus. And, and what we find as we look at Jesus in this account is something that really applies to us today as well. And that is what Jesus actually comes to do is give vision of our deepest desires and how he begins to meet those desires in ways far beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. So we just read what the scripture says here about it. Now we want to talk a little bit about what it means and then why that matters. That's basically what we're going to do is what did it say? This is really hard to understand these three categories. What does it say? What does it mean? And why does it matter? Okay. So here's what's going on. Jesus is coming into the very city that was the first city that was... It was the entrance into the land that God had promised them. Right? Jericho. He comes, they come into this city with his followers and a great crowd, which is the same language that's used of the feeding of the four and five thousand. So we're talking thousands of other people following Jesus with his entourage of twelve men who are following, who are his closest, um, who are his disciples, which is those who he poured the most of his time and energy into. And as they come into Jericho and they go through it, they see a man on the side of the road named Bartimaeus. He's the son of Timaeus. He's the only person who Jesus heals that the Bible tells us the name of. Every other person that Jesus heals is a man, a woman, a child. But this, this is the one who gets a name. We're actually told his name, Bartimaeus. And he's the son of Timaeus. And he's a blind beggar. It's quite possible is that because they mention his dad's name too, Bar means son of, Timaeus is the name. And so Timaeus, the dad, it's quite possible because they mentioned both of them that he was blind as well. So here's this, here's this young man. Maybe he's older at this point. But he's been blind his whole life. And he's a beggar, which means he sits on the road outside the city gates and he asks for nothing except he just is consuming Give me, give me. That's all he can do. That's how he stays alive. And so he has nothing, you see. Now, that wasn't all that uncommon, by the way, either. You'd have other blind men or lame men or women on the road, and they'd be asking for things. And the religious people would come through, and they would say with very loud clanking, they would drop their alms into a plate, uh, into one of their into something metallic in which they would carry, take the, the coins in. And it was this kind of sign of like righteousness. 
the righteous will give money to the poor. And the poor have nothing to offer or give. They're not righteous, and so they simply receive. And that's what's going on. And this man has heard of Jesus. In some form or fashion, he's heard of Jesus. And when he hears this large crowd coming, you can imagine him saying, what's going on? Is Is the whole town leaving? And they're like, well, there's all these people who are following Jesus. And he's like, that's Jesus, the man from Nazareth. That's, that's the guy I've been hearing about. And what does he do? He yells out above the crowd. And he doesn't say, Jesus of Nazareth. What does he say? Look at what he says in verse um, 45 there. Jesus of Nazareth. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David. Now that language is very, very important. And here's why. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is a story that accounts for all these, the, the, it's a historical book in the Bible that speaks of many things, but King David is one of the key characters. And David was promised something by the Lord, and that was this. You will have a son who will be an eternal king, who will be on your throne forever. He will be the one who will restore all things and your kingdom will be a kingdom worldwide. You can imagine hearing that as the the David that we've heard some stories about and just going, huh? What? And yet this guy gets something that we don't get. He got something that people then don't get. He got something that the followers of Jesus, the disciples, didn't get. Uh, Peter had told him, had said in front of all of them, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And this man is saying very something very similar. You're the eternal prince. You're the king. You're the one who will always be. Have mercy on me. The key question that Jesus asked in verse 51 is, what do you want me to do for you? Where else have we heard that phrase? That's right. In verse 36, just a few verses earlier, the disciples come and he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do the disciples say? We want glory. We want, what do you want me to do for you? He says to James and John, and they said, we want glory. He comes to Bartimaeus, and Bartimaeus comes to him, and he says, what, kind of, what do you want me to do for you? He says, I want mercy. You see the difference? Sometimes those who are closest to Jesus are the ones who want to enter into his glory. We want to be seen as those who, we've got our act together. We are close to you. We are doing everything that we need to do. We go to synagogue with you. We listen to you read passages like Mark or like Luke 4, like we read earlier, and say that you're the one coming to relieve the sight of the blind. And we want glory. Now this is right after... This is right after Peter has said to Jesus, you're the king. And then these guys come and they say, we want to be in your glory. When you come, we're going to be on your right and left hand. Would you please give that to us? That's the deepest desire of our hearts is that. But Bartimaeus says, I want your mercy. I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. I'm bringing nothing to my hands. I have a few coins that people have been righteous and given me, but I have nothing else. So you think about the disciples, that even though physically they see, spiritually they're blind. 
That's actually a theme we've been seeing in these past chapters, and we can develop that longer another time, or you can ask questions about it later if you want. But even though physically they see, they're spiritually blind. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, is even though physically he's blind, spiritually he sees. The disciples, on the one hand, there's sort of this sense of entitlement. There's a sense of righteous. I'm, we're with him. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, sees himself as being unclean, uh, as being full of sin. Now, in other words, sin is hard for some of us. Uh, and, and the idea of sin is really best understood in its biblical sense of this. Sin is a compulsive, or compulsive attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that come out of our basic alienation from God. So those of us who go like, oh, I'm in, I'm in good with God. There's a sense of kind of entitlement, right? There, there's a sense of like, well, I'm, I'm righteous. Uh, there's a sense that I spiritually see. Really? All of us has to ask this question, okay? How, how do I see? What is it you want? What is it you want in your life right now? Like, what is your deep desire? It, rarely do we take the time to ask that question. Um, some of you are musicians. So, so many people in Nashville play music, or if they come to the Nashville do music, and they're really good, and then you ask them, what do you do? Uh, about a year later, they're like, uh, nothing. <laughs> like, oh, are you a musician? They're like, no. Because you come here, and all of a sudden, you kind of lose your identity, because there's so many people who are gifted music, right? Out of all the musicians I've known through the years, which is many. There's only been two musicians when I asked them this question who were able to answer it for me. What do you want? What do you want to do with this music thing you have a gift in? I'm like, think about it. I'll, I'll meet with you again in a week. I'll clear my schedule to come sit down with you and I want you to talk to me about it. You know how many people have actually taken me up on that and done it? Out of those hundred two. And it was so beautiful because they were able to actually say, this is what I want. Because that's a really threatening thing, isn't it? It could be very threatening to say, I want to be a pop star. I mean, well, what happens if a year and a half from now I'm not a pop star? I want to be a songwriter who can make a living off of writing songs. Well, what do you do a year and a half from now when it's not happening? Right? Then what do you do? And so it's very threatening to put that out there because then you see yourself as a failure. But it happens in all sorts of different you know, careers. But what is it you actually desire today? Maybe it's a relational security. Maybe you're like, if I only had, then fill in the blank. If I only had um, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband who loved me or a wife who loved me, um, you know, we all say that a lot of people want to be married and a lot of people who are married, who are single want to be married and a lot of people who are married wish they weren't married. I mean, it can go both ways. What is it you really want? If you're willing to ask that question, what happens here is you find, begin to find, am I like that are followers of Christ, the disciples who say, we want your glory? We want to be with you. We actually want glory. Or... Is it more like Bartimaeus says, Lord, I need your mercy. And so what do the disciples do? They rebuke. In the middle of all this craziness and chaos, 
they rebuke this one guy who's yelling out for mercy. Now, that word rebuke is the same word we've heard several times throughout the book of Mark. One is, it's what Jesus says, Jesus says to the demons, to these spiritual beings that are against God. He says, I rebuke you. And then he says, be silent. The exact words that the disciples use for someone who's very broken and yet very loved by God. They treat him the same way they would treat a demon. We've also heard that exact language with the wind and the waves. Jesus says, I rebuke you, be quiet and still. And they obey him. So, what happens here? Jesus says, uh, shh, call him. Call him to me. And he calls him, and he comes. How is it that the church can actually make it harder right now? This is an honest question. It's an open-ended question. How are some ways that the church as a whole, but maybe even this church in particular that God is just starting to form, make it hard, that we would actually rebuke people out? That we would hold other people away from Jesus? So let's just kick it out. I mean, it's an honest question, just for a minute. Some people don't think we should ask questions in the middle of a sermon. Yeah, go for it. What do you think? What are some ways that make it hard? Some of you guys um, have been hurt, perhaps. You felt pushed away or ostracized, uh, almost like rebuked, told to be silent by people in a church. Maybe even leaders in a church, or especially leaders in a church. So what are some things that... That it's what it's like. How how do churches do that? Well, um, you know, you have like a self righteous thing going, either personally or the church itself. No. So if there's a self righteous thing going, either personally or as a whole, or as a um, more of a majority. Yeah, I, I think you can do that with, with words and actions. So you just have to be not self righteous. Okay. And what are some of the, what are some of the, I, mean, I won't put you on the spot too much, but what are some of the words and what are some of the actions? Because sometimes well, it's, sometimes it's, when people, like if they have yeah. a problem and you, you know, you say, well, you know, that's easy, easy to fix, just don't, don't drink anymore. Okay. You, know, you can say, you can hear things and the way you respond to them aren't tender or aren't loving. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Good. That's great. That's good. Yeah. I feel like I've noticed this numerous times in, in several church contexts where there's maybe a, um, a decoupling, divorce, some sort of breaking of a relationship, some sort of bond mm-hmm. in the church. And sometimes it's, it's over, over areas where there's maybe Sort of pick sides almost? Well, it's there has to be a review to call out what's, what's, what's happened, but there's also a comforting that has to come alongside that. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that in the church. And it's, sometimes we do a really horrible job. 
What does a healthy review look like? A healthy review versus in a... Even in those situations yeah, yeah. where somebody needs to be Well, yeah, it's know, good. It's, it's it gets real messy, doesn't it? It can get real messy. Yeah. Other ways that people are not welcomed into churches, perhaps. Yes, Rachel? The cool kids table. Okay. <laughs> the, coo- the cool kids table. I mean, y'all are real cool. Like, let me be clear. Yeah, yeah, right. But that, like, hierarchy now of, like, making pastors, like, the... the Right, right. <laughs> yeah. No, that's right. Will, you got something? <laughs> yeah, Megan? Yeah, you have to it look like a Christian. Right. It could be race, it could be economics, it could be I mean everything. And we contextualize, right? Every every church has a certain, if you will, vibe. Mm-hmm. But there's the vibe has to be one that's open and loving towards people. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Megan, did you have something? I thought I saw your hand go up. It's very challenging. And especially if there's economic differences at all. That's a big, that's even, I mean, that takes it to a whole new level, doesn't it? Yeah. And it can be either way, by the way. What else? Was there anybody else? Yeah, Zach. Just the lens that scripture and the gospel is perceived and taught specifically Sunday mornings throughout the week, whether it's small, uh, small groups. And what I mean by that is comes off as behavior modification in a set of rules. You show up on Sunday and you got to be this, this, that, and follow these rules. And if not, you're hopeless. And if you show up and you realize if you can't do this and that and hold it all together, why do you get this thing to show up? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Personally, and I've actually heard that from others. You know, uh, thank you all for your insight. And then, you know, if we go, you know, going to lunch afterwards, if you want to continue these discussions, that would be great. One of the, you notice what happens. Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't just rebuke 
his disciples and then say, don't do that anymore. Love other people. Um, that would be a really bad ending, wouldn't it? To this account. And it'd be easy, I think, for a group like this to walk out of here and go like, yeah, we can't be that way. We've got to be different. We've got to quit being like putting people at arm's length. And we've got to actually invite people in. Right? Not untrue. But where is, how do you do that? Where's the power come from to do that? And that's why this question is actually asked a third time. What do you want me to do for you? It's not only asked before to James and John. It's not only asked to blind Bartimaeus. It's actually a question that Jesus answers. The father is like, what do you want me to do for you? And you know what Jesus says in the garden? He goes, I want what you want. And that is for me to be a ransom for many. In, in, the, in this few verses before, in fact, the verse before we started today, in chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says that I came to be a, not to be served, but to serve and to give myself over as a ransom. One who restores people, who brings sight back to the blind, whether it's physical or spiritual. And if we begin to see that, and we are filled with the power of the Spirit, the very Spirit that opens the eyes of our hearts so that when we're spiritually blinded, as we lack faith, we're told that for those who lack faith, only the Spirit can open our eyes and bring us a gift of faith. So that, you know, what were the first words God spoke ever? We're told in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light. And there was light. And then we're told in later, many, many millennia later, that the very God who said that light shine out of darkness has made his light to shine in our hearts, those who are followers of Christ, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, where? In the face of Christ. See, now we see in a mirror dimly, but one day we'll see face to face. And the reason is because Jesus Christ went to a place where he became utterly absorbed in darkness so that we might be utterly absorbed in his light. And it happens like this. On the very day that Jesus dies, what happens to the skies? What happens in the middle of the afternoon? Everything's dark. But when he comes back from the dead, three days later, when he comes back from the dead, here's what it is. The son of righteousness rises with healing in his wings. As a people individually and corporately, we begin to believe that. We begin to come together and say, we believe Jesus is Lord. That's when the power starts. That's when the, the sight of Christ goes, that, that's when we stop looking at each other only with the eyes of mankind. And instead, we begin to see each other with the eyes of God in Christ. You know, the story that I mentioned at the start of the mom and the daughter in Pakistan. The daughter actually went on and she got surgery. It was amazing. And as many of you know, there's multiple reasons for blindness, but this surgery actually worked. And as soon as she saw, the first person she saw was her mother. And she said, you are beautiful. What I had only felt for and hoped to be true is now, tr- is now I see it. That you really are beautiful. 
How do we get there? When Jesus calls us, we come. When we come, we cast off. We're told to hear that the blind man, he casts off his robe. You know, the robe was what he had to survive with. Right? It kept him from sun. It kept him from heat. It kept him from cold. It kept him from rain. All the things that we tend to believe make our lives stay together and work for us, we cast that off. And when we come, and Jesus says, follow me, but go on your way. What does he do? He follows Jesus as the way. And he falls into Jerusalem where he will die and rise again. That's how the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. We believe that. We respond to him in these ways. And then we're set free. Because we live in the light. We no longer have to hide who we really are. We can be more open than anybody else. A follower of Christ. What does it look like today for us to come to Christ for the first time or the thousandth time, like someone was saying earlier? Uh, It means this. Hear his voice. If you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart. Cast off everything that is on you, the sin, the things that so easily entangle us. Cast that off and then come to him. Collapse on him. You don't have to earn it. You receive it as a gift, even as Bartimaeus did his sight. Lord, use these words that we might be a changed people to be more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.